Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given us exceedingly great and magnificent promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust." Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word, and it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates our thinking, that we may come to understand that we are all filled with many thoughts, ideas, values uh, that are not not consistent with your word, but are in fact hostile and contradictory to your word, and thus they are antagonistic to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. That your word teaches that we are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, the culture around us, but we are to be transformed by the renovation, the renewing, the overhaul of our thinking. We have to think differently because we are now in a different family. We are in your family And we must think as you would have us to think, which means we have to think biblically. So, Father, now as we study your word, help us to be transformed by what the word teaches, that we may come to understand more fully who you are and who we are, created in your image and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last night at sunset was Passover, Pesach in Hebrew. So yesterday was Erev Pesach, which is the Pesach Eve or Passover Eve. And last night, Jewish families around the world in some places met together and had their Seder. In many places for the second year, they are not meeting together at all. I mean, it is just absurd that, that because of the pandemic and everything, they're, they're not meeting together. I guess in some places, if they've been vaccinated, there's more that met together this year. But for us, this is a reminder of what uh, happened during what is referred to as Holy Week uh, in church history, that last, uh, that what would have transpired on on, on the um, at, at sunset last night was the beginning of the fourteenth day of Nisan, the Jewish month that this now is part of. Now, the fourteenth is important in Latin. This would be this is referred to because there's a controversy over this. It was called the Quartodician controversy. Now, you, I know you'll remember that, and you'll wake up in the middle of the night and. That'll be on your mind. Um, but that means 14. And it was a, a debate in the early church, and eventually it led to a split, one of the four causes of the split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church. Up until uh, around 1050, there was one just 
Christians. Everybody was the same. And then there's the split between East and West. It was about the third time they split, but this one, they haven't gotten back together again. And what it was over and what it reflects and why I brought this up is it reflects the increasing anti-Semitism in the church. Really, the Greek church, the Gentile church, cut themselves off from Jewish believers by about 200 to 250 A.D. So they had no clue what the Jewish backgrounds were to any of the Bible because they cut things off. And so in the East, they still had some sense of the Jewish calendar, so they wanted to observe uh, Good Friday on uh, on the 14th of Nisan, not on a Friday, but on the date. And in the West, they and which of course would mean that two days later they would observe the resurrection, which would not necessarily be on a Sunday. But in the West, they said, no, Christ rose on a Sunday. We need to always celebrate Easter on a Sunday. And so that's why we have, have that. And later on, when... Um, the Celtic Church, which had basically been founded by uh, Patrick, who was not a Roman Catholic saint. He was a Celtic Christian, uh, which was more biblically orthodox even at that time, took the gospel to Ireland, and then through a series of missionaries and monasteries, they brought the gospel across to Scotland and then down into England from the north. Well, by then... Uh, the uh, Pope had sent a man named Augustine, not the Augustine of Hippo, but a different man. This was a little bit later. And he went in, came in, and he brought Roman Catholic Christianity up from the south, and they met in the middle, and they were observing Easter on different times. So they had to resolve things, and the Roman Church, of course, uh, took power over that. And so that's why all of us celebrate Resurrection Day on on a Sunday. Now, in terms of understanding that week, yesterday would have been the day on the date that the date and actual anniversary of the crucifixion of our Lord. On sunset on that day was the beginning of the first day of unleavened bread, the first day of Passover. So it was that night after the crucifixion that they ate the Passover meal. So that would have been on uh, Friday of that week. We went through all this detailed chronology when I went through, through it in Matthew, when, in our study of Matthew. And then there was the next day, which was on, uh, a Shabbat, a Sabbath, so it was Saturday that, that year. And that would be today, the day that's in between uh, the crucifixion day and the resurrection. So tomorrow would be, according to the Jewish calendar, it would be the, the date of the resurrection. So if we were living at a time when before all of this was settled by the Roman Catholic Church, we would be celebrating resurrection day tomorrow. So that just clues you in a little bit as to thinking through the chronology as we are thinking about have, celebrating uh, Easter next week, uh, or Resurrection Day next week. All right, so that covers the significance of, of the week. So open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And today I want to focus on just one aspect of the, these verses in 15 to 16a, 
and that is the power of God, something that is lost in the thinking of many, many Christians today. They have lost sight of the power of God, especially as it relates to their spiritual life. So we're going to focus upon that. But first, I want to remind us of the context of this passage. It's a short section, and it leads into a doxology a, a, where the, it, the emotion of the Apostle Paul, for lack of a better word, and the intensity of his thinking at this point leads him to this sort of an outburst expressing the significance of God at the end of the chap uh, at the end of chapter 3 in the last two verses which we haven't read but I want to read them to you before we go through this section because they connect a lot he after going through this section of his prayer he concludes with this doxological statement now to him who is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think in other words, you can't even imagine how great God's power is in taking care of us, and, and we limit that all the time. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that's how he concludes it. So the language in this next couple of verses in 15 and 16 especially 16, is very important leading into that. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. And as I have pointed out, it starts with this prayer. He introduces that in verse 14, for this reason, which is I've taken time and pains to show you, takes us not to the previous section in chapter 3, 1 through 13, but it takes us back to what he said in 2, 11 to 22. And what that means is his focus, the foundation for what he is saying, goes back to the content of this so-called mystery doctrine that is what he's focusing on in the section from 2.11 down to uh, 3.13, and that is previously unrevealed truth. As I've said so many times, mystery does not mean something that is kept in isolation as a secret, and you're trying to figure out what it is, what the solution to the conundrum is. A mystery was a previously unrevealed truth, and that's very clear from the way it is explained in the previous verses, that it was hidden in God from eternity past. He, no angels knew about this part of the plan. No humans were uh, clued in on this part of the plan, that there was going to be a new spiritual entity following the uh, resurrection and ascension of our Lord called the church that would be composed of Jew and Gentile together united in one new body, one new man, one new household, one new temple. That's what 2.11 down to 22 talks about, that there is this one new entity where those 
Old Testament ethnic distinctions were no longer relevant, and this is a foundation of this, this, this new entity that has come into existence. So it's really the foundation for understanding that the solution to all, um, all things related to race disagreements and ethnic and cultural disagreements are to be eradicated within the body of Christ because we are all now equal in Christ and it doesn't matter what shade of skin we have. And so as I focused on this, I took us through some things on prayer last time, which I'll review in just a minute, but he is going to pray to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, he, he gives the content of it. So we, we didn't do much with verse 15 last time. I bow my knees that, okay, that that, as we'll see, introduces the content of the prayer that he would grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That's, what, that's, his, that's the core of this prayer. He's not praying for things. He's praying, as we have seen in previous weeks, to the Father for the, for the believe, to strengthen the believers. So he prays to the Father. We ask the question, why is he praying and for what is he praying? And that's answered in verse 16. He prays that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them in their spiritual life. Well, why do we need to be strengthened in our spiritual life, be strengthened by the Holy Spirit? It is so it will produce the result that Christ would make his home in us. Now, this is different from his permanent indwelling of every believer. This has to do with experiential fellowship, what Jesus is talking about in John 15 when he talks about abiding in him. Because uh, we're all indwelt by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every believer is from the instant of salvation, and that relates to our position in Christ. But our experience is different. We need to be not only indwelt by the Spirit, which is permanent, but also we need to be filled by the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. And sometimes we walk by the Spirit and sometimes we don't. And that is related to abiding in Christ. So the reason that he wants Christ to be at home with us is so that we can comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for them. And we could use another word there, the infinite reality of Christ's love for us. That's the, the whole metaphor of understanding the width and the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love. And he wants us to know the love of Christ so that ultimately we can be spiritually mature and reflect Christ's love to others. That is really sort of a roadmap here in the prayer to spiritual maturity. And this is what Paul prayed for for the Ephesian believers, and it's what we should be praying for for ourselves. That's the application I've been emphasizing. So in this passage, we're looking at understanding the content of this of this prayer. So we quickly went through a few things about prayer last time, and I'm just going to summarize uh, those by way of review, is that prayer is, the, is defined as the believer's vital communication link to his heavenly Father. We're to constantly be talking to God. And a lot of times these are just bullet prayers. You know, thank God that, thank you, Lord, for that guy not hitting me. And other prayers like just uh, help me to articulate the gospel right now. Uh, 
and other times like just, uh, you know, help me respond in the right way. Give me wisdom to answer this person. Give me wisdom to deal with this family problem. Just quick bullet prayers. And other times we should take time to be alone and think through prayers and write them out because it helps us to focus our thoughts and what we are praying for and include scripture. And we see patterns of that in the New Testament where they are praying to God and they're quoting from scripture in the Old Testament and putting them together in a way to express a basis for their petition to God in terms of their prayer. So I've also pointed out that we have four basic elements to every prayer using the acronym of CATS. Now, you don't have every element every time you pray because if you're Sometimes you have to confess all the time, but uh, other times you know that you're in right relationship with the Lord because you keep short accounts, and so you can just send off these little bullet prayers. But part of prayer includes confession, where we just admit or acknowledge to God our sin. Second, adoration. We praise God for who he is and what he has done, and we can just have prayers of adoration all by themselves. Other times we have Thanksgiving prayer, just thank you that that guy didn't hit me just now on the freeway, uh, things of that nature. And so we're thankful for things. When we wake up, we look outside, and it's a beautiful day, and we're just thankful we have a beautiful day. So we have those kinds of prayers. And then the fourth is supplication, where we are requesting something of God. In intercession, we're praying for others, and in supplication, we are, are, are excuse me, in petitions, we are praying for ourselves. And then I went through a variety of verses to show that we pray to the Father. But we are to pray to the Father in the name of the Son and by the Holy Spirit. And we saw that Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 6, 9, and in Matthew 11, uh, 25 to 26, that prayer is to be addressed to the Father. We don't pray to the Son. We don't pray to the Holy Spirit. You're Protestant, so I know that you're not even thinking about praying to the saints or to Mary, but we pray only to the Father because We don't pray to the intercessors. The Holy Spirit and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ are interceding for us in different ways. So we also are told to give thanks. Passages like Colossians 1.3, 1.12, and 3.17, we give thanks to the Father. Paul says, we never give thanks to anybody else. It's always addressed to the Father. And 1 Peter 1.17 says that, Uh, if we pray to the Father. So there's never an indication in any passages of praying to another member of the Trinity. In John 14, 13, and John 16, 23, and 26, Jesus, all of this is part of the upper room discourse. Jesus reiterates that when you come to the Father in my name, when we ask of the Father in my name, and so we come to the uh, Father, on, in, on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, that's what that means. If you do something in the name of somebody, you're, that you're representing them. They are uh, the one on whom, whose basis you are coming into the presence of God. So it doesn't mean, although we do this, it doesn't mean that we pray. We always have to say, in the name of the Son, 
it's a good practice, but we don't have to do that because we are, as a believer, coming to the Father in the name of the Son because he is the one who is our high priest. And then uh, we do it by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.34 and Romans 7.25. The Holy Spirit is, uh, as our intercessor, the one who edits our prayers on their way to heaven. You didn't know he was there was a divine editor, but that's basically what he does because the text says we don't always know how to pray as we ought. So he sort of cleans things up and makes our prayers more uh, presentable. So I concluded that we must learn to pray, pray more diligently. We must teach our children to pray, and we must make prayer a more habitual, non-negotiable practice in our lives. First Peter 4, 7 states, But the end of all things is at hand, or is near. Therefore, be serious, and I translated this as thoughtful. Uh, there are some other ways in which this is uh, translated. It's a difficult word in, to translate into English, uh, but in its, if, uh, in its basic uses, it, it has to do with being objectively minded, that you're thinking clearly, and that uh, one uh, passage says uh, that uh, it means clarity of mind and resulting good judgment. So that's what this is talking about, that it's often translated be sober in your prayers, and that communicates something slightly different in English. It doesn't mean don't be drunk when you pray. It means to be clear-headed, to be focused, to be objective, and presenting your prayers to God. So that is a great verse for us to remember, that we should be serious and thoughtful in our prayers. So Paul then goes on to say, regarding uh, the last thing, he says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And then verse 16 gives us the content of the prayer. But I want to talk a minute about what he means in verse 15. Let me skip through that. From whom the whole family and heaven on earth Named. Now, this is an unusual verse, and it's a little difficult in terms of interpretation. There's a variety of ways in which it is understood, and because of the use of the, the, the concept of the whole family in heaven and earth, is this talking about everyone that is in heaven and earth, believers, unbelievers, angels, elect angels and fallen angels? Is this talking about only believers in heaven, those who have died and those who are on the earth? I I think both could be true, but it's not exactly clear in, in this particular passage. Paul uses an unusual word that is translated as family in the context when we see that phrase, from whom, it's referring to, back to the previous verse which, where he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times we would take a relative pronoun like this and connect it to the immediately preceding word, which would be the Lord Jesus, but it doesn't fit 
him, it fits the head noun of that phrase, which is the father. And so the uh, word for father is pater, and what we have with Paul is a little play on words. He's got a pun going on here to get our attention. He mentions that the father from whom the whole family is named, and the word for family is patria, a word that is built on the word father. Now, patria is an important word. One of our English words derives from that, and that's the word patriotic. And so it emphasizes the loyalty that someone has to their homeland or their fatherland. The Greek here emphasizes that the idea is lineage or descent from the father side of the family. That would be the line that would determine one's clan or tribe. In the Septuagint, the word is used over 150 times translating Uh, Hebrew words in the Old Testament that talk about a family which is headed by a father, and that is used that way in passages like Exodus 6, 17, and 19. But then in many cases, it's describing a, a larger unit made up of several families, and that would be referring to a clan or a tribe that have common descent from the same father. And that's used also in passages like Numbers 2.34 and 4.22. In Luke 2.4, in the New Testament, it refers to Joseph being from the patria of David. So David is like the patriarch. That's where we get our word patriarch also. David is the head of the family of which Joseph and Mary are both descendants But the emphasis goes back to David and not to Jesse or not to Boaz because uh, David is the one that God gave the covenant to, the, the Davidic covenant that is through his seed or his descendants that the Messiah would come. In Genesis 12:3, it talks to the word is used in the in the Septuagint when God promises to Abraham. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so that's talking about the patria, the families of the earth. And so there's a reference, and it's quoted in Acts 3.25, showing that this phrase, families of the earth, is not restricted to believers or unbelievers, but refers to uh, everyone on the planet. Now, the New King James Version, which is what I have on on the screen, translates this as whole family. The Greek word is sometimes means all, every, or it can also mean whole. And most translations that are updated in their language, most of them are translating it as every. And the difference is that whole family sort of leans more towards the interpretation that this is talking about those who are believers, whereas every family it look, is looking at God as the Father in terms of the fact that he is the creator. And this would be one of the few passages in Scripture where God, where the word Father is alluded to in relation to God as creator. 
we have passages such as John 1.12, which clearly teach that the family of God is restricted in, in, in one sense to only those who are believers. As many as received him, that is, who have received Christ as Savior, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his, in his name. But if you look back at Scripture, see what this verse is saying here is that from whom, that is from God the Father, the whole family or every family on heaven and earth is named. And so there's a relationship back to God as the creator. And when we look at Scripture, God is the one who names Adam, Adam and who names uh, Isha, or Adam names Isha, that indicates the role of the father. And in the Old Testament, the father is the one who names the children. And in Jewish tradition, the son would be named in reference to his father. So David would, be, would have been known as David ben Jesse. And Jesus would have been Yeshua ben Yosef. And so that always emphasizes that, that lineage, the family tree, going back in terms of the uh, patriarchy. So the passage, though, here also alludes back when it talks about every family in heaven. Just a few verses back in verse 10, there's the mention of the principalities and powers. So that some have tried to restrict this to angels. But the general idea within the thrust of this passage is simply emphasizing God, I think, as the uh, creator his, and bringing into focus where the prayer is going. God is the sovereign creator who is providentially overseeing not only all of human history, but the spiritual growth of his children. But it all fits under the rubric of the fact that God is the creator who is uh, involved in our lives. So that's what Paul is, is alluding to here, is that we are to be reminded that God is involved in all aspects of his creation and all aspects of our lives. He is not some absentee landlord, which is the way deism uh, uh, portrayed God as just uh, the, the old imagery of the watchmaker who created the watch and winds it up and then goes off and does something else and doesn't pay any attention to it. That God is intimately involved in this, and so then we are to go to him in prayer. In Ephesians 3.16 gives us the content of that prayer. And there's a lot here that needs to be thought through. And so today I just want to focus a little bit on one aspect of it. It begins with the that, which in this kind of a construction indicates the content of the prayer. And he says that he would grant you. And the verb there for grant is the general word in Greek for giving. And whenever we see the word giving... In relation to an act of God, we need to think about the grace of God because God's giving of anything to us is always unmerited because there's no necessity for God to give us anything. 
the human race is a race of rebels who have rejected God and have turned away from him and disobeyed him, starting with Adam. And there was nothing internally in God that demanded that he do anything to save any of these rebels. But he did. That's his love. That's his grace. That's what grace means. It's unmerited favor. And it is not something that we work for or something that we can earn. Those of you who are following along on the church history class on on Monday night, we're in that section in the Middle Ages where Roman Catholic theology develops, and they have sort of a twisted way of expressing this because at the bottom line, grace is something that is earned. But the way it works is that when Christ dies on the cross, he earns all of this merit by his death on the cross. And then by grace, we're able to get bits and pieces of that merit through the sacraments. So it's not works, it's grace. It's a twisted way of using the language that... Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes it very clear, for by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. So God grants to us, it's his favor, it's undeserved and unmerited, and Paul is praying that God in his grace would do this, and it is given according to the riches of his glory. So that's the standard. Now, we've looked at this in the past, that this word riches in the Greek is a singular word, so I've been translating it as wealth, which is also a singular word, but riches can be many different kinds of riches, so wealth is one kind, and it refers to all that we have in Christ. We have been uh, given his wealth, and this is our possession. It's as if we had, for most Christians, it's as if we had a bank account and we had uh, $100 trillion in that bank account and we're living as if we are homeless and have nothing whatsoever. And we're not re- relying on who we are and what we have have in Christ. So it's God is granting this according to the riches of his, here it is of his glory. Now, what does that mean? A lot of times the way scripture uses glory, we're, we're left sort of, that's, that's odd. I'm not sure I really understand what that means. And I've pointed this out many times that the word glory was used as a as a synonym for all of god's attributes so in in the among the Jew, jews at that time if they were talking about all of god's attributes that is the totality of his attributes is what makes him so important and so indispensable in our lives And so the word glory emphasizes the importance, the significance of something. It's weighty. It's important. It's a word that describes something that's heavy but or or weighty. You can go back, and the other day I was reading 
a quote from someone related to something else, and they were talking about how weighty this issue was that was part of the discussion. And that's the word glory. It means something that has great weight and significance, and God is weighty. He is the most significant being in our lives, and that is because of the sum total of his essence, the sum total of his attributes. So the Jews would just refer to the sum total of God's attributes, that which makes him so important is his glory. So when you read a phrase like this, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory, we could translate that literally as according to the riches of all that he is, of all of his attributes, the riches of and the wealth of all that God is is the basis for what he will give to us. So Paul's prayer is based on the essence of God. He is appealing to who God is to grant this prayer. And then he says, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And we look at this phrase, and I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about God's power, God's power for the believer. And we have an interesting phrase here because it talks about being strengthened with his power, and the verb that is used for being strengthened is based on, based off of one noun, uh, kratos, that relates to power, and then we're strengthened with power, and it's the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite, and there's so many unlearned preachers who will say, see, we have the dynamite of God through the Holy Spirit, and that's just not how language works. But God's power refers to his omnipotence. God is able to do whatever he desires to do. Now, often you'll hear people simply define omnipotence on the basis of the etymology that God is all-powerful, and then people say, oh, well, that means that God can make a square circle. No, that's that's not what this means. So to avoid those kinds of... Uh, of irrational, irrational statements, God is able to do whatever he wants to do. And whatever he wants to do is going to be totally consistent with his character and with reality. So that, that makes null and void these questions about, well, God, can, can, can God make a circle, a square, things like that. In the scripture, there are three areas that are emphasized in relation to uh, God's power. And I think these are important. The first is the power of God in relation to his creation. How powerful is God? Well, let's think about what he did in his creation. Now, you have a problem in your life. And I don't know whether the problem's a problem with work or whether the problem's with health or whether the problem is with uh, some people, whether it's family or friends, whatever it is, but... We all have different problems that we have to deal with on any given day. So if we think about God's power that is being made available to us, some people get the idea, well, that's just, I don't know, God, God can't help me with this. But let's think about God's power in creation. 
the more we have learned from science about the nature of the physical world, the more we realize how incredibly complex it is and how its organization goes down to microscopic particles. We, we, it's just been within the last hundred years or so that we, were, we discovered the atom and were able to break the atom down into its components of neutron, electron, and, and proton. But you also have subatomic particles. You have things that are going on within the atom that we can't identify that are holding those three elements together. You have submolecular components we're discovering. You have these DNA chains that just in, involve so many different components, and yet they all work in absolutely perfect harmony. And that could not have come about by accident. It couldn't come apart by chance. And this is what has given rise to even secular uh, scientists recognizing that there must be something beyond our understanding out there because this gives clear evidence of an intelligent designer who has made everything. In the history of theology, that was called the theological argument, an argument from, uh, from a purpose or design. And this is the fact that we have a God who is, has designed and orchestrated everything, and for everything to work together without conflict, without complexity, everything works together, and God is the one who has created all of that down to the most minute particles, which we may not even be aware of yet. And so... You have passages that go to that. Then we have passages that talk about God's power in relation to resurrection and the significance of Christ's resurrection and that resurrection power for our own lives. And then we have other passages that deal with God's power to save us from sin, that this is a devastating thing that has happened to the human race, that we are guilty of Adam's sin and therefore cannot have any kind of relationship with a righteous God. And yet that righteous God devised a perfect plan whereby human beings could be, could be saved, that the sin problem would be taken care of. And the way it was handled was that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would enter into human history in a phenomenal way so that he maintains all of his divine reality, even though he limits the use of his, of his deity in many ways, and he is true humanity. He is true humanity so that he can die in the place of human beings. Only a human being can die for human beings. So he dies for us, but because he is also God, his death has an infinite value, and therefore he can be the perfect substitute for us. So these three areas, and a fourth area, which will develop more in the passage, relates to the power that's available to us in the church age through God the Holy Spirit. So for creation, I just have one verse here to focus our attention on. Mormons 120, for since the creation of the world, 
his invisible attributes. Attributes is usually italicized. That's what's indicated there, but actually the, the Greek just says his invisibles, all that is not perceptive to us through our senses. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, that is, through the results of his creation, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And the word there for eternal is not a normal word. It's only used twice in the New Testament, once here in Romans one twenty of the, and I think you could come close to emphasizing it here as infinite, it 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 it's again one of those words that can go in a couple of different directions but it's applied here to God's power which of course is without boundary so it is infinite and it applies to the power and deity of God here and then it is used of the those eternal chains of darkness that confine the angels who are in Tartarus We've studied about them in our study on Thursday nights in Second Peter. That's the only two times that this particular word is used, so it's really drawing a distinction about the nature of God's, of God's power. And then as next week is Resurrection Sunday, we have a number of passages that relate to understanding God's power in, in our uh, according to salvation and the resurrection of Christ specifically. In Romans 1.4, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection of the dead, that a human being has conquered death and been brought back to life, is evidence of God's power. That's the greatest problem we ever face is when we die physically, we're dead. Nothing brings us back to life. We can't bring ourselves back to life, but God brings us back to life. He is the originator of life, and so God can bring us back to life. And I don't think there's any other problem we face in life that is as difficult for God to solve as death. And so the application from that is if God can solve that problem and provide resurrection, then God is capable of solving any other difficulty or problem that we have in life. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He is capable of handling the problem of death. 1 Corinthians 15.43, in a chapter related to defending the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says regarding this human body that it is sown in dishonor, that is because we are spiritually dead and corrupted by sin, but it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness and raised in power. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. It is God's omnipotence that brought Christ back from the dead in resurrection and defeat. And it goes on to say, For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. And then Paul says in Philippians 3.10, 
And this is a tremendous verse. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is related to our understanding of, of God's power in our own life, both today and in terms of a, our future resurrection. So Paul is really talking here not so much about phase three and glorification after death, but he's talking about now in this life that we can come to fully grasp the power of God and rely upon it. Then the power of God is related to redemption. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel has the power to break through a person's resistance to God just as the Apostle Paul was resistant to the gospel, hated Christians, and was on a mission to obliterate Christianity by killing and executing Christians. And yet the gospel broke through. It's God's power to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. First Peter 1.5 tells us that once we're saved, God keeps us. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there it is related to our, our, our trust in Christ that secu- and we're kept secure by God until we are eventually saved from the presence of sin in glorification for all eternity. Now, the second broad area where this is used refers to God's power through the Holy Spirit for church-age believer, that in this passage we read that it is through the Holy Spirit that, is we, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit. And this is a different phrase to express uh, intermediate agent, that God does it through the Holy Spirit. He's the intermediate agent in this process, and he's the one who conveys the power of God to us. Now, that's in contrast to the other phrase that we will see, which is this is uh, the use of the preposition dia with a genitive noun, like we have with through faith in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved through faith. It's the intermediate agent. Here it, 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 we have another phrase, by means of, and we walk in pneumity, the Greek preposition in, we walk by means of the Spirit, and we are filled by means of the Spirit. Uh, that indicates uh, that the Holy Spirit is not only the one through whom God strengthens us, but he is the one by whom God strengthens us. And so we have to recognize that that we have access to God's power Remember when we go back to what we learned in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, that we, uh, that it's through Christ and his death on the cross that we now have access by one spirit to the Father. And so here it is strengthened through the spirit. So there's two different dimensions of the Holy Spirit's way of enabling us to face and handle 
any and every situation. And one of the way in which he is present and enables us is, is in the uh, explanation of the gospel to unbelievers. This is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. See, God the Holy Spirit is the one who is really working to make your presentation of the gospel clear. So even when we fumble and bumble and mumble, God the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in the individual to enable them to understand the gospel. So it's really not dependent upon your uh, your skill and ability to present the gospel correctly. You do it the best you can, but ultimately it's God the Holy Spirit who's going to make it clear. There are people who can listen to someone in a denomination that is not explaining the gospel correctly, and yet what they hear is the truth, because God the Holy Spirit's the one who makes the gospel clear to people. It's the Holy Spirit who is sufficient for us. This is so important in Scripture that that means that that God's power is able to help us handle any situation. It is more than enough. And in a situation where Paul was praying that God would remove that that thorn in the flesh, that whatever that that problem was in his life, and Paul Paul prays and God answers, I'm not going to remove it. My grace is sufficient for you. You can handle the situation. I'm not going to remove it. You can face it and deal with it on the basis of my, my grace and my provision. And so Paul says, Therefore, I will gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then in Colossians 1.11, uh, to be strengthened, here's the word, the, the verb related to dunamis, to be strengthened with all might, there's the verb and the noun together, according to his glorious power, that's the verb uh, that we also have in our passage, uh, for all patience and long suffering with joy, it's God's power that enables our character to be transformed into that which, which resembles Christ. Second Peter one seven. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And when you read the stories of those who have been martyred for their faith, you recognize that there is a grace that God must give them to have the power of sound mind, not to cave into fear, not to fall apart, but to keep their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, even when they are being tortured to death. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life, and godliness is the spiritual life, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. His power has given us, it's sufficient, and we need to learn to trust him even when we think we may have a better idea. And then Paul, uh, in Romans fifteen thirteen says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, we will close. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this time that we are reminded of your power. 
that we are not to rely on our understanding, on our uh, limited capabilities, but we are to trust in you, trust in Scripture, trust in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, We are to walk by faith and not rely on what the world tells us will solve our problems, but on your power and your word. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that in your grace you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that we need to read your Bible, read the word, learn the word, so that we can learn all about what you have provided for us, because it is through your word and through the power of the Spirit that we are enabled to be strong spiritually, to be able to face and endure and handle whatever situation may come in life, and that we may do that with stability, with peace, and with joy. Father, we pray for whoever may be listening to this message, that if they've never trusted Christ as Savior, that that is the good news of Christianity, that we can be forgiven of sin freely because of what Christ did for us on the cross that we do not need to do anything to earn it or deserve it. It is not a result of religious activities. It is simply trust in Christ alone. And that if we trust in him, you will keep us by your power and eventually bring us home to you. So, Father, we pray that we will take this message to heart and God the Holy Spirit will make these things very clear to us as we think about them In the days to come, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.